0: You have a copy of God's Word. You can turn to Psalm chapter 34 this morning. That will be our text, Psalm 34. Uh, Ralph Davis and his Commentary, his very short commentary on this psalm tells the story of paratrooper John Steele and the village of Santa Mare Eglise. And if you speak French, I'm sorry that I butchered that name. Santa Mare Eglise, a small village in France where there is a church with a great steeple in front. If you were to go and see that church, it looks pretty ordinary, it looks like nothing more than a, a regular church, uh, an impressive church, uh, but uh, nothing out of the ordinary. And yet, in June of 1944, on D-Day, John Steele parachuted was parachuting down into that village, or rather a nearby one, when the wind caught hold of his chute and blew him off course straight into this village where where there was heavy enemy gunfire. John Steele, his parachute, got caught on that steeple. He had dropped his knife and was hanging there literally by by threads uh, up above a town that was being shot up by the Germans. He decided his best option was to fake being dead, hanging from that steeple and... Wouldn't you know it, it worked. Two hours later, the chaos had died down. Uh, the gunfire had ceased, and he was, uh, felt safe to play living again. Uh, he was cut down and taken captive, but he survived. He'll go on to live for another 20 years or so. There is an a extraordinary story behind that church steeple though it doesn't look all that impressive outwardly. And that's a lot like Psalm 34. There, it, it, as we read it, it will appear to be a, a, a normal, regular psalm, praising God, thanking him for his goodness, and yet there is an extraordinary story behind it. Uh, so we're going to read Psalm 34 together, but before we do, let me pray for us one more time. Our Heavenly Father, we, we do come now to your word. We've drawn near to your throne, and we ask for your mercy, and we ask for your faithfulness as we read and hear and hear applied your word. Uh, We know that we cannot understand it. We cannot live it out without your spirit, and so we pray for your spirit to be working in our hearts now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 34. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. This is a psalm of thanksgiving. Uh, uh, Thanksgiving psalms are are common uh, in this book. And I think it's good to look at Psalm 34 this morning just because, simply put, it's, it's a good crash course in how to be thankful. How to be thankful. Now, it's a story. We'll, we'll look at this a little bit later. The extraordinary story behind this psalm is one of uh, very serious human creativity and ingenuity. And yet, that's not the story we have written down in this psalm. Sort of like, well, we all know those apologies that are not really apologies, you know, I'm sorry that you got hurt. Um, I'm sorry that you feel this way. Really, those apologies that don't really take ownership of your own sin. Like, you can have an apology that's not really an apology. We can fall into the trap of, of being thankful and, and giving thanksgiving without really giving thanksgiving. And so it's good to go back to Scripture, see the pattern set to see that the recipe for what true biblical thanksgiving looks like. So what is true biblical B- biblical thanksgiving? I think we see in, in three parts in this psalm what that looks like. Number one, it means to boast. And number two, to remember. And number three, to invite. So we're going to look at this, this psalm under those three headers, to boast, remember, and invite. The first three verses... Let me read them again. O oh, bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Can Christians boast? Can they be proud? Uh, I'll never forget sitting... Uh, with a, a big group of guys in college uh, in one of our college ministries. We'd just gotten done I think playing some sports, ultimate frisbee or, or flag football or something like that and the conversation went toward is it okay for us to be proud about the things we're good at? Is it okay for us to be proud and, and to recognize man I'm, I'm just really good at throwing a football? Um A lot of the the young guys in that college ministry said, yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with recognizing that we're good at things. There's nothing wrong about taking pride in in my own gifts. And that conversation went on for a while, and and the leadership finally stepped in and said, no, you guys are all wrong. I, I know it seems harmless, but it is not good for us to be proud even in the things that we're good at. Boasting, boasting for the Christian is actually a a good and a right thing for do, to, to do, but it's kind of a paradox because if we're boasting the right way, all of the attention gets deflected away from us and all of the praise goes to God. If you're boasting the right way as a Christian, you should feel very, very small You should feel humbled. Uh, a, A really good verse to memorize is in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth now the lord lord is saying there don't boast in certain things but boast in the right thing now wisdom and strength and riches are, are not bad things but they shouldn't get the glory right they're not the things that that run the world wisdom and strength and riches are here today and they're gone tomorrow Even when we have those great gifts, we do not boast in those things. It's actually very similar to to Philippians chapter 4 from last week. We don't rejoice in the circumstances, we rejoice in the Lord. Likewise, we do not boast in the gifts that we have, we boast in the Lord. We don't boast even, even in the great deliverances that God works for us, because even those good gifts and the good things pale in comparison to our King. In fact, they're meant to point us to the giver of those gifts and to make much of him. So here's the question, because it's a very fine line, right? When you're you're giving thanks, uh, you're giving praise to God, where do you cross the line? How do you know that you're boasting in the Lord rather than boasting in the gifts or boasting in yourself? I think David in Psalm 34 is very helpful. He says in verse 1, boasting in the Lord doesn't give up, right? His praise will continually be in my mouth. I will bless the Lord at all times. We should be able to to boast in the Lord and and to worship him whether whether we're in abundance or whether we're in wants, whether we have plenty or whether we have little, whether the Lord gives us the things that we ask for or whether he doesn't. We should be able to boast in him always. And if you can't praise him, if you can't boast in him, it's a good sign that that we ought to check our hearts. Because we may be boasting in, in the things that we've been given rather than boasting in the Lord. We might be boasting in the things of this earth rather than the things of heaven. We should be able to boast at all times because as uh, one commentator says, God's glories and his excellencies are unchanging. His glories and his excellencies remain the same no matter what we've been given, the good or the bad, the easy or the hard. There is never a reason for us not to praise the Lord because the Lord does not change. So our boasting in the Lord doesn't ever give up, but also our our boasting in the Lord, as I said earlier, it it should humble you. Again, that's what David says in verse 2. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Again, this is the, the paradox. The more that we boast in the Lord, the more that we are truly deflecting the praise from ourselves to our King, we should feel smaller. We should feel more humble. The purpose of our boasting and, and, and thanksgiving and praising is not to make ourselves feel better. The purpose of our thanksgiving is, is to show the greatness of our God. Yes, the, the thanksgiving should, be, it should minister to our souls. It, it should be a, a great witness to other people, and, and we'll actually get to that at the end of this psalm. But primarily... When we give thanksgiving, it should be a deflection away from us to God, to make much of him. So even as we reflect on some of these these great heroes uh, in scripture, in life, in history, we need to be very careful about not venerating them too highly. Uh, David is is often a a great figure we point to, to, to be like him. Uh, and I was, I was reading this morning just in, in the book of Daniel uh, and reading a devotional along with it that used this phrase that I'm sure you've heard before, dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand up like Daniel, to be courageous and bold like him. Now those are good and we should imitate the saints of old. We should imitate those people who were righteous and, and lived out the faith well But in all of David's life, in in the book of Daniel, the purpose, the primary purpose is not to look at those people. Just for instance, the the book of Daniel, right, dare to be a Daniel. The purpose of the book of Daniel is to show the Most High God, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. It's to show that, that the Lord is in control of even those kingdoms who are oppressing God's people and takes them into exile. He is the one who raises up rulers and he is the one who humbles and dethrones those who are proud. He's the one preserving his saints and giving them the strength that they need. Even in the lives of of the most holy of saints, it's supposed to point to the most high God. We exist as human beings to lift him up and to bow down low before him. That's our whole purpose, is to worship him and to make him look great. Which actually leads in really well to the second point, the, the next section in this psalm, to remember. Now there's a, there's a heading at the be, uh, right before verse 1 in this psalm. It says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. That actually points us back to uh, a very small story in 1 Samuel chapter 21, at the end of 1 Samuel 21, from verses 10 to 15, it says, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath, and the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Um, This is, just as a brief side note, something that sets apart Thanksgiving psalms from from the more generic phrases, this, this idea that there is a specific event and a specific answered prayer that David is writing about here. There's something specific. So it's a, again, it's a good practice to, to reflect and remember the very specific answers to prayer. Uh, now in 1 Samuel 21, David is on the run from Saul, who's persecuting him. He is desperate to the point that he runs away to Goliath's hometown, in the country run by the Philistines, Israel's enemy. More than that, he had just stopped by a friend, uh, gotten something to eat, strengthened for his way out, and that friend, the priest, had given him Goliath's sword. Right? A great monument to David's victory over Goliath. And so David is so desperate, he runs away to Goliath's hometown, while carrying Goliath's sword. Let that sink in, what David decided to do. Not a great choice. Again, Ralph Davis says it's like a steer walking into a meat grinder. Absolute desperation. And so what happens? He's looking for respite. And he's looking for a place to hide. Um, the, the Philistines sniff him out. Now, they have not forgotten what David has done. David recognizes he's in trouble, and so what does he do? He decides to act crazy. He lets his his spit run down his beard. He he claws on the the doors and the walls. Looks like he's lost his mind, which makes him totally repulsive to the the Philistines, and they let him go. They let him go free. Now, compare that to verses 4 through 7 in Psalm 34. In 1 Samuel 21, do do we see God's name written down in that account? And not once in Psalm 34 do we read about David's cleverness in getting out of the situation. It's just a, a hopeless man with a, well, you can call it clever if you want, a clever plan to escape. Uh, I don't know if David is meant to look heroic in 1 Samuel 21 or if he's supposed to be embarrassed. I would lean towards the latter. He's not held up as a great hero in that event. Either way, though, David's got a really good story to tell, escaping from the Philistines. He could make that a really good one. One of those stories where the, the fish keeps getting bigger and bigger every time he retells it. But when he retells it, It's a very simple story that a poor man cried out to the lord for help and the lord answered he gives god all of the credit when he reflects on this event he could have told the story a very certain way highlighting his own cleverness highlighting his own ingenuity but he chooses to tell this story with a focus on the lord Again, this is a good thing for us to do, to reflect on all of the good gifts that God has given us. Israel made it a habit as they wandered through the wilderness, um, as they went about their lives to actually set up memorial stones to remember where they had been and to remember how the Lord had delivered them. <clears> That's <throat> a good thing for us to do as well. I think we sang about it in a come thou Fount." Here I raise my Ebenezer. Ebenezer just meaning a a stone of help. Some sort of memorial that would remind you what God did, when he did it, and where he did it. And to keep your your mind fixed on him. And in all of those stories, God gets the credit. I'll say it's hard for me... I'm sure it's hard for you when, when you retell of, of the great stories of, of victory and accomplishment, it's hard not to be puffed up. It's hard not to to highlight our own creativity, or to emphasize what what you know our, our really uh, wise friend did for us. It's, it's hard not to to puff up humans sometimes. But whatever the story is and whatever has happened to us, whatever victories or accomplishments we've won, it it really all just boils down to one thing it's an answered prayer of God. The Lord heard our cries and He delivered. He was generous with us. So think about it. What accomplishments have you gained? Maybe what's, what spiritual progress have you made in your life? What enemies have you escaped? What sin and temptation have you overcome? What, what victories have you won unexpectedly? How do you reflect back on your life? How do you tell those stories, either to yourself or to other people? God is the one who gets the credit. Now, what if you haven't been delivered yet? I know many of us pray for many, many things, and we don't always get what David got. We don't get delivered out of the enemy's hands. Well, David's story, and your brothers and sisters around you too, when they tell their, their, their stories of thanksgiving, they're still meant to encourage you Actually, I would say Psalm 34 is meant even more for you if you have not yet been delivered from your enemies, right? So in, in, in that short section of verses 4 through 7 in verse 5, David is generalizing for all people, re- really calling them to seek the Lord like he did. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. And again, in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The Angel of the Lord, whether you have been delivered or not, he encamps around you. He surrounds you with His army to protect you in those times. It, it really reminds me of um, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, Second Kings chapter six, with, with the prophet Elisha and his servants. He's, he, is, he wakes up one morning. Uh, and goes out of his tent and sees the entire army of the Syrians surrounding the city that they're living in. And that entire army is not coming for the city. They're coming for Elisha. Elisha is one man, and an entire army is standing against him. That's hopelessness, right? He is isolated. He has no one to help him. Really a lot like David, being in the camp of the Philistines. Isolated, in the midst of your enemy, totally hopeless. And yet Elisha does not give up hope. He says to, well, his servant gives up hope. But what does Elisha say to his servant? He says, do not fear, for those who are with us are greater than those who are with them and he prays that his servant's eyes would be opened. And the Lord does that, and he reveals to Elisha and to his servant uh, chariots and horses of fire surrounding the city as well, encamped against the Syrians to protect Elisha and his servant to win the battle for them, and Elisha is eventually delivered out out of the trap, out of the hopelessness. It shows that no matter, no matter who is encamped around us as enemies, no matter how long the odds seem, the Lord is always there and there is nothing he can't deliver us out of. There is nobody the angel of the Lord can't defeat. There is no affliction that God himself can't heal us from. Uh, really old writer wrote about this psalm and i think he really really hits on the the christian condition and also the human condition he says do not let the fear of what is likely to be hinder your prayers the fears of the godly are not prophecy right how often are we How often are we discouraged to pray because we think we already know what's going to happen? How often do we not go to the Lord because we, we believe that our fears are prophecies? No, God wants us to seek Him out. God wants us to pray big. God wants us to pray confidently. He wants us to know that He can deliver us out of anything and that there is nothing... No hopeless situation when you are a believer finding refuge in the Lord. <clears throat> well, let's take that a step further. What happens when your prayer hasn't been answered? The enemy is one. There's nothing left to pray for. Paul has something to say about that. I'm sure a well known verse that you've heard before in 2 Corinthians 12, where Satan had placed this thorn in Paul's side. And Paul says, I've prayed continually for God to take this thorn out of my flesh. Take it away. Take it away. And the Lord never does. And so what's the lesson that Paul is supposed to learn? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. The thorn has not been taken away, but my grace is sufficient for you. You have all that you need to make it through this situation. You have all of the the new morning mercies, again, that we sang about, and great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. He gives you that strength every single day to fight through it, to overcome it, to not give up on God, to not forsake him, to not lose your trust in him but to believe that he is still the wise God and still the good God and still the all-powerful God. His grace is sufficient for you. Deliverance only comes from the Lord. So whether you are in trial or whether you're out of trial right now, are you continually seeking the Lord's help? Or are you relying on your own ingenuity? Are you relying on your own creativity, your own schemes, your own plans, your own hopes? There is nowhere that is safer and there is nowhere more hopeful than in the refuge of the Lord. Remember him when he delivers you and seek him when you need it. So we are to boast... In the Lord, we are to remember his deliverance thirdly and finally. We are to invite. From verses 8 all the way through the end of this psalm, you could consider it just one big invitation to other people. And this is one of the, the again, another great theme in the psalms of thanksgiving. If the number one goal of thankfulness and thanksgiving is to praise God. The number two goal is, is to bring others into that realm of love and care and provision to make sure other people know about this God. Again, Ralph Davis says that that praise is greedy. Praise craves company. It is always seeking to multiply itself. So as you were to read, from verses 8 to the end, you you see all these phrases like, come taste and see that the Lord is good. Come, fear the Lord, you his saints. Come, oh children, listen to me and I will teach you. So who's being invited? Who were we to invite to the Lord? I think in Psalm 34 we see that thanksgiving is supposed to be a a tool to disciple and to counsel other believers or to make known God's gifts that he's given us to other people uh, for a specific purpose. Again, another commentator says, every time the Lord rescues from trouble, It's a warrant to every other believer to lay hold of the covenant. Every time we read about God's generous gift in Scripture, every time we we hear of another story of God's generous gift to somebody in this church or a family member or a neighbor or whatever, we're meant to use that as a reason to grab hold of God's covenant to grab hold of his promises and say, yes, I know you are still a good God, and so I'm going to keep going to you as well. I am going to seek you out. I want to taste and see. I want to worship you. And really flip that around as well. That That's the purpose of thanksgiving to God. That's that's the reason we we share our good things with other people because we want them to go to God. We want them to taste and see. We want them to worship. We want them to fear the Lord. We want them to know who this God is. But really, more than just that that verbal invitation, uh, David gets that and Peter gets that, which we read from from 1 Peter earlier, this idea that, that Thanksgiving is meant to change your life as well. And that life testimony should be a witness to those around you. Those who have, who have tasted and seen for themselves should look and sound differently after they've encountered God, after they've encountered his blessings. They should be... Uh, What David says in verse 13, people who, who keep their tongue from evil, who do not speak deceit, turn away from evil and do good, who seek peace and pursue it. And that kind of transformation, the way we live our life is meant to be winsome and attractive to those around us, both in the church, but those outside of the church as well, which is really what Peter is getting at in his letter that our good deeds, our, our holiness, our love and kindness and the peace that we pursue with our fellow human beings should cause, what Peter says earlier, the Gentiles to glory in God in that day, to win them over to Christ. So again, this has kind of been a, another running theme with this idea of thanksgiving between Philippians and, and Psalm 34, this, this running theme of, of blessing other people when they revile you, not returning evil for evil, but loving those who hate you. All of our thanksgiving should, should have this, this, outward, this outward bent, this outward focus, trying to bring others in to the refuge of the Lord. And what are we inviting them to? What are we telling them about God when we tell of his, his gifts and generosity and praise rightly? We're telling them that he is the God whose attention is always fixed on his people. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their trouble. I, my, my attention gets divided quite easily. Uh, I can't tell you a number of times that I've uh, just been sitting around the house with my wife and... All of a sudden, I come out of a stupor, and she's been telling me a story or telling me something, and, and uh, I just wasn't listening. Uh, you don't have to worry about that with God. He does not slumber, He does not sleep, He does not hide His face, He does not forget about you. His attention is always 100% fully fixed on you, His child. There is never a time where you pray and you have to worry about whether or not he heard you. There is never a time you ask him for something and worry that he was sleeping. And he is the God who is near to the brokenhearted and the God with whom there is no lack. He saves the crushed in spirit and though the afflictions of the righteous are many, he delivers them. Really, again, it goes back to his eye is on the sparrow. There is not a single hair of your head that can fall without God ordaining it to happen. And that should be our greatest comfort as believers. So the the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his bre- precious blood and rescued me from the tyranny of the devil. And he watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Now there is a there is a realism about that question and answer. There's a, there's a realism in Psalm 34 that says, yes, you will be afflicted. Yes, the hairs will fall from your head. Yes, evil and wickedness will crush your soul and they will shatter your hearts. But your shepherd is sufficient to carry you through. His rod and his staff comfort you. He leads you beside still waters and he restores your soul. Scripture is realistic, but it gives you assurance as well. Your shepherd is sufficient. Again, one writer writes that among all the redeemed in glory, there is not one who looks back and sees that on earth there was any mistake in the divine conduct towards him. No matter what trial you're going through, when you stand in heaven and you're praising God, not one single person will look back and say, you know what? God did treat me unfairly. He did miss on that one. He made a mistake. None of the redeemed in heaven are singing that now none of them will testify in that way. He provides all that we need and we will never lack. Finally, he, he is the God who saves eternally. Right at the end of the psalm, verses 21 and 22, this is, there's something more going on than just this earthly life. He says the wicked Will be condemned. The Lord will redeem the life of his servants, and none who take refuge in him will be condemned. He is he is very clearly looking forward to that great day when everyone will need to find refuge in the Lord. All of the earthly victories, all of the earthly deliverances are supposed to to force your eyes upward. They're supposed to force, force your gaze forward to see through these things to the next life. And really, all of the good gifts that we've been given, they're only possible because Christ has redeemed us. They are—they're All of the great benefits, right, Our call to worship. Forget not all his benefits. All of those things, we only have them because Christ has won them for us on the cross. Christ has redeemed us from eternal damnation and given us eternal life. He has turned the Lord's face from wrath to blessing. He is a kind, gracious, generous Father for us. And because of Christ's death, all of these these earthly gifts that we've been given, it, it, it infuses them with so much more meaning. It infuses them with so much more depth because we actually recognize and thank and praise a God who saves us eternally, who has done something so much greater than just helping me get over my cold, who's done so much greater even than healing cancer, so much greater than rescuing us out of an an earthly, hopeless situation. He is the refuge that we have for all of eternity. Really, the overarching theme for this psalm would be to be thankful with a purpose. I'm sure we just spent the last few days all all being thankful, maybe even going around the table and sharing what you're thankful for. Don't be thankful to just be thankful, be thankful with a purpose. All of these good things are meant to make us look outside of ourself, to see the all-surpassing worth of our God, to bring others in to that goodness and provision, and to give us a foretaste of our eternal refuge and salvation in Christ. Be thankful with a purpose. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do give you the, the thanks and the praise this morning. We know that we are weak. Uh, we know that we uh, struggle with pride. And we have a hard time lifting you up and bowing down low. We pray that you would help us to apply these things to our hearts. Help us to, to recognize your greatness, to boast in you. Pray that we would be good about reflecting and remembering on your many good gifts. And we pray that you would work, work through us to bring others into your fold. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.